Welcome to The Good Night Show. I'm Shay Morrison, sleep expert and co-founder of The Good Night Co. Join me each week for hints and tips on all things sleep. Hello and welcome back to The Good Night Show. The three pillars of health are one of my favourite things to speak about, as exercise and diet often take the foreground and sleep is the forgotten pillar. In actual fact, you can't have a good diet or exercise effectively without sleep. Today, I am joined by women's health and hormone nutritionist, Selene Douglas, to talk about the role sleep plays in nutrition and how our hormones impact sleep. Also passionate about sleep as the third pillar of health, Selene explains how a lack of sleep leads to low energy and consequently, poor health choices and outcomes. Our overall health and well-being is really simple. It all comes down to three key things. How we maintain good sleep, which leads to a healthy diet, and energy for exercise. Welcome, Selene. It's so great to have you on the podcast. The first question I love to ask guests is, how did you sleep last night? I slept really well. We've got this new um, red light. I don't know if you've seen those. And my partner got it a few months ago and I actually fell asleep in front of it before I went to bed. Wow. Um, so I, I felt like I had a really good deep sleep as a result of doing that for 40 minutes or something before bed. And is that the red light? What? Where have you got that positioned? Um, we actually just put it in our lounge room or in yeah. sometimes in our bedroom. Like you can kind of, it's quite big, but you can pick it up and move it around or put it on the back of a door or something like that. But yeah, at the moment it's in the lounge room and sometimes we lie in front of it um, at nighttime or first thing in the morning. Oh, perfect. I love that. Well, I'm glad that you had a good night's sleep. You know, it's so lovely to have you on the show. I love talking to people um, in all sorts of health professions. And I think talking to a nutritionist is absolutely um, so critical when we look at the, the total picture around our um, holistic health and well-being. And I would love for you to break down just in your words, what role does a nutritionist play? Like if somebody is thinking about who do they um, bring into, into their practice around mm-hmm. who, they're, who they're talking to about their health journey, I think um, talking to a nutritionist can be a great place to start. So how do you describe that for people that are a little bit unsure and, and not really sure about the role that you play? Yeah, definitely. Nutritionists in general can help with so many different things. And typically we all have our own little niche area. Some are generalists, but I'd say for the most part, we have our own kind of little niche, but we are across lots of different things because of course, everything in the body works together and in unison. So it's all very well to specialize in one area, but if you can't then consider the body as a whole, it's a little bit useless. In general, nutritionists can help you obviously with what you're eating day to day, looking at your blood work to determine whether you need to eat more of some foods or less of some foods. We can also pick up um, different genetic issues as well. Um, And depending on the specialty, a lot of nutritionists can help with, you know, chronic gut issues, different gut infections, parasites, parasites. And even things, obviously, um, which we'll talk about today, like hormonal imbalances and irregularities as well. So there's some of the really common things we can help with. And and certainly um, on the hormonal aspect, um, what I do a lot of is helping women with things like PCOS, endometriosis, um, transitioning through to menopause and perimenopause more smoothly, coming off birth control and not getting a big resurgence of symptoms and all those sorts of things. 
Fabulous. I know that um, one of the areas as you're talking about that you do niche a little bit in is the hormonal area. And I think Mm. that this is such a big place for us to be, to be starting, particularly when it comes to sleep. And I think that, you know, one of the things that you and I have talked about before is um, around looking at the three pillars of health. So we look at um, how exercise diet and sleep play an important and as equal role. And I think that one of the challenges that we have in society today is that sleep was probably not something that, that wasn't really spoken a lot about um, for the past, you know, 20, 30 years, but it's certainly becoming um, more important as we understand the relationship and getting the balance right around how mm. we put our focus areas So I guess it would be great if you could just talk a little bit more about, you know, the role that the three play together and how we can make sure that we're equally spending time there. Yeah, definitely. I think you're quite right. Like it's really easy to prioritize one area, whether it's the exercise and you really prioritize going to the gym every day, but then maybe it's at the expense of sleep, for example, like that would be a really common one. Um, But what we need to, I think, acknowledge is that they all impact each other. So when I'm picturing that, I don't know if you do this, but I always picture like the the Venn, is it a Venn diagram with the three circles and them all overlapping and some really easy ways that we can conceptualize, I guess, how they all interrelate is something that I would see really commonly. And I'm sure everyone has experienced this before is if you've had a really bad night's sleep and you're feeling tired, that's going to really impact your blood sugar control the next day. So you're not going to feel like having good quality protein and fats and veggies. You're going to feel like having bread and toast and carbs and sugar. Like that is what your brain is going to want because you didn't have enough sleep. You're not well rested. And you're then your physiology is really looking for that quick pick me up. That's going to spike your blood sugar, give you a quick hit of energy, but yeah, kind of only last a couple of hours before you're craving that again. Um, And then we know that it affects appetite. So you're more hungry. I'm sure everyone's experienced that before, Mm. right? Where you've been really tired and then it's like you are, you cannot fill up the next day. You just want to keep eating and eating and eating. Um, And I'm sure, you know, if you have mums listening to the podcast, they can probably Mm. relate to that. If they've had a bad night's sleep with the little one and the, as far as, you know, the research goes, um, having monitored blood sugars and stuff before myself at home, you can actually see this in your blood sugar the next day that there is dysregulation there. So from that point of view, we know that um, sleep is going to have that real physiological change in your body. But then if we think about that happening over a long period of time, so say it's not just one bad night of sleep, but it's like Mm. all the time, you don't have the energy to actually even bother like taking care of yourself properly, Mm -hmm. right? So if you haven't slept properly, the likelihood that you're going to want to either get up early and go to the gym or go to the gym after work or walk or whatever it is, it doesn't have to be going to the gym, but the likelihood that you're going to be doing any kind of exercise is dramatically going to decrease because you just don't have the energy for it. In that same notion, you're going to be less likely to want to spend time cooking a nutritious meal Mm. at the end of the day because you're tired. So Uber Eats it is, right? We can see that kind of like flow on effect of how it starts to impact everything. And I think in working one-on-one with clients, like often that is a really low-hanging fruit. You want to fix the other things first, right? But sometimes you just need to 
get that person to see that sleep is kind of that first thing they need to address so that they can actually feel better in order to prioritize doing a little bit of meal prep or whatever it is that they need to do to achieve those other things that are going to make them feel better. You can get into a vicious cycle. Is yeah, really what for you, sure. you know, I've seen it. I've been in it. You know, you're talking about it now. So it's almost that how do we how do we break the vicious cycle and get out of that? Because there's probably a lot of people listening who say, I didn't just get one bad night's sleep. I've had months of bad night's sleeps and this is my pattern. So how do we break that? Yeah, definitely. I think it's so important that you kind of need to look at what that domino is. And if it's, you know, you focus a lot on sleep, but not on the other things, well, then like we need to look at how we might start addressing those Um, because they really all do feed into each other. Like simultaneously, you could, um, you could be eating really well, I suppose. Um, but then neglecting your exercise, that's obviously going to have an impact on mental health and Mm. mood and all of those things. Um, and I think the wheels like at the end of the day, will start to fall off all of them. If you're not kind of keeping them all in check, would you agree? Absolutely. And I think that maybe in this conversation, it's, as hard as it is, it's sometimes addressing maybe the thing that you're not doing. So the the, the piece of the puzzle that you're not yeah. doing or that you don't want to do, addressing that and starting with it, even though it's very challenging. So you might not want to exercise and you don't, you know, you're not motivated to, but it's kind of drawing all of that courage to addressing that so that you can yeah. get on the, the wheels, like sort of get on the bus of moving that forward so that the other pieces of the puzzle can fall into place. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is. It's a tricky one. And I, you know, I do really feel for people that are in that situation. And I think that going and and having a consultation with somebody like yourself is a great place to start because then there's somebody there to hold your hand, to walk Mm. you through these stages. And there's a plan and, um, you know, help that you can get yourself out of the situation. Yeah, definitely. There's steps. I think it can, because a lot of it, there's so much information within each of those, like people would say, well, nutrition, like that's, you know, there's a plethora of information out there online. Like, where do I even start with that? Right. Do I have to be perfect? Like all these questions. And so I do think whether it's the nutrition side that you need help with or the exercise stuff with or the sleep, um, getting help from someone is really beneficial because they can point out like these are the key priority areas for you as an individual. Mm. And these are the next one, two, three, four, five steps that we're going to do over X amount of months in order to get you there, right? Rather than you kind of Googling and then being like, oh my God, there's all these things I need to do. And I think it's <laughs> taking into consideration as well, um, something we talk about a lot of the Good Night Co is that sleep is personalized and mm. nutrition is personalized um, yeah. <laughs> and, and exercise is personalized. All of these areas are very personalized. And so you do need to be prescribed so, you know, it is ideal rather than just Googling and thinking, oh my gosh, I feel so overwhelmed because there's so much information here. I don't know where to start. You know, it might be that also you do need to get um, some blood tests run and to find out where you might have a depletion in the body that needs to be addressed first. You might have a leaky gut issue or, you know, th- there's so many different areas, low in iron or, or whatever it might yeah. be. And addressing those, um, those areas first can probably be a great place to start. 
for sure. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So the tip there is go and seek some professional advice, whether that be from anybody in your um, group that you've identified that can help you, um, whether that's a doctor, a nutritionist, a naturopath, um, a chiropractor, wh- whatever it might be, there are lots of health professionals that can help point you in the right direction and give you a place to start so you don't feel overwhelmed. For sure. And one of the things that I know that, that you do like um, to specialize a little bit around hormones, females, and, you know, moving into this hormonal phase, and we were talking about it earlier, I'd love you to give some insight around the hormonal changes that are happening in our 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, and I guess this relates more so to females, but how does this also impact sleep? And I think when we were just talking, we were talking about the fact that whilst, you know, hormones may not have such a big impact in the 20s and 30s around sleep, what we were really talking about though is addressing that point before we get to burnout or, mm-hmm. you know, coming down with tonsillitis or glandular fever or, or, or some of the conditions that a lot of females in their 20s and 30s experience, understanding those signs before you get to that stage, which is going to help for when you get into your 40s and 50s and 60s. Yeah, absolutely. I think from a very basic point of view, I guess, just to start out with kind of conceptualizing how hormones can even impact sleep. There's so many different ways, but even just in our menstrual cycle, when we're in our reproductive years after ovulation, we get a big increase or surge in progesterone and that increases our body temperature by half a degree, which might sound like a very small amount, but it does make a significant difference. And so often women will note that they actually don't sleep as well before Mm. their period arrives. I don't know if other women notice that, but a lot of my clients will sort of take note of that. And so that is literally because that progesterone is stimulating your thyroid and that is heating up your core body temperature. Mm. Uh, So that's a really, really common kind of thing that everyone sort of experiences. Um, I think in our 20s and 30s, typically with um, spinning a lot of balls, especially Mm. say early 20s, you might be studying and uh, juggling work as well and then also trying to manage a social life. And then as you come out of that, you're going into full-time work. It's usually like an uphill um, slope learning-wise. And then you're also still managing a social life. And I think um, it's very, very common for women to get burnt out. I would say like late 20s, early 30s would be that most common sort of um, time period. And like you said, that off, so often leads to getting sick. And I think the, the early warning signs of that really that we can quickly identify is if you've ever had a time where you've gone through a really busy period and then you get sick when you go on holidays. I don't know if you've ever experienced that that was the story of my life in my 20s and 30s. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's a really good thing to take note of because that tells us that you're producing a lot of cortisol, which is one of your main stress hormones, and that's suppressing your immune system while you're doing all the things, right? Whether it's study, work, whatever it is that's keeping you busy day to day. And so then when you take a break to go on holidays and you kind of take that pause, your cortisol levels go down, your immune system's allowed to do its thing, and then you get sick. Yeah. So if you notice that that does happen in your body, well, you need to kind of take stock of where you can potentially get some support and get rid of some of those things that you're doing. I think there's stress management, but then I think we also need to acknowledge like what are the things that we're doing that we actually don't 
need to be doing anymore? Like mm. what can we remove rather than just trying to add in more strategies to cope? Yeah. Uh, and then obviously relevant to this show would be looking at like how much sleep are you actually getting per night and what quality is it? Because that's where most of your repair, rest and repair um, activities take place in the body. And so if you do have that kind of I'll sleep when I'm dead mentality, which I think is very common in that yeah. stage of life, um, that will unfortunately catch up with you and there will come a time when either you get really sick or you you're kind of um what's the word like tolerance to Mm. being at that level you don't have it anymore like your your tolerance of what you can cope will be dismal if you keep going like that and it might not get you until you're in your 30s or your 40s but I promise like you can't go like that forever yeah I love I love what you said I think that that's really true around it's identifying um you know, when you might reach reach that critical moment where you're feeling really mm-hmm. overwhelmed and looking at things that you can take away rather than just adding supplements or meditations yes. or med- yeah. whatever it might be to the list of things to cope better. And I think that, that I, I really love that. I think that out of everything that we, you know, we haven't, we're only halfway through the podcast, but I think <laughs> that that is such a critical thing for people to think about is um, what are all the things? So it's almost like whiteboarding all of these things. And yeah, then I literally think that out. last oh, year. There I had, you go. What was it last year? A couple of years ago, I had a big kind of meltdown, burnout moment. Yeah. I was on a walk and then all of a sudden I just honestly started like crying and I was like, what? I'm not a crier. I'm like, what yeah. is going on? And I just realized it was, I just had too much on my plate. So I went home, got out the big whiteboard, yeah. wrote down all the things that I had going on in my life, work-wise, et cetera, all the things. And I brought my partner in to look at it and he was like, oh my God, I'm going to have a panic attack just mm. looking at that. Yeah. And then we kind of together just went like, right, well, what are the X amount of things that I can get rid of in the next week? And then yeah. it was kind of like a wind down process over the next three to six months of the other things that I could get rid of. And then we just had a really strict rule where I had to say no to anything work-wise that popped up and you do have to be really like firm with yourself Mm -hmm. but I think often once you get that practice of doing it initially you get more ruthless at it because you don't want to end up back in that situation again Mm. so it's saying no and it's really (laughs) really saying no learning how to say no and stripping things back I think that that you know that's such a a great lesson um, particularly for people Mm. that are in it's any age because anybody can go through this but in the you know in talking about what we're talking about in the 20s and 30s when you just want to take on more and more and more and more is actually sometimes going, you know, what can I do less of? Because when we say no and when we do less, more opportunities come through anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Oh, can we touch also on um, just the the shift around perimenopause? So for women that, that are transitioning into the perimenopause stage, they might be in their you know, 40 to 55 sort of age group. Um, it's certainly an age group that I'm in and I, you know, I'm interested to, to get your um, opinions on things that people can look at doing to, um, to get better sleep and have that bit of understanding around what's actually happening. Yeah, definitely. So key things, everyone I'm sure is probably familiar with this, but as you're approaching that age, your estrogen levels are declining 
And that affects how your hypothalamus functions. So hypothalamus being a little um, gland in the brain and that really affects your body temperature. So everyone's probably heard the hot flushes or may have experienced them. Um, so that's a key part of what's going on for you. So one of the goals with easing perimenopause most of the time is looking at what strategies we might implement in order to stabilize estrogen levels, because basically they're kind of going up and down and left and right. And that causes a huge impact on not just our sleep, but even our mental health moods, anxiety levels, which of course can impact sleep as well. So it's not just about the hot flushes and the temperature, but there's also a lot of neurotransmitter changes that are actually happening in our brain at that time. And, and it can really feel like um, we're really changing. And maybe going <laughs> um, to be crazy. Our brain is really changing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm sure other people probably describe <laughs> it like that. We wouldn't like to have yeah. um, it described like that. But yeah, I think um, one of the best things you can do from a really foundational point of view, which we're going to talk about shortly as well, is maintaining good blood sugar control. So going and getting your insulin levels tested. Mm -hmm. um, and for reference, if you're getting that done in Australia, that should be sitting between three and five if you have really good blood sugar control, much over that. So say much over seven and you do want to be having a look at what you're eating day to day to better manage that blood sugar because that is really going to impact your moods and um, your estrogen as well. And then the other thing I recommend, because everyone is really different, like, yes, mm -hmm. we know that typically you're going to have declining estrogen levels, but there could be all sorts of things going on with testosterone and progesterone and all of your cortisol, for example, um, is looking at potentially getting something like a Dutch test done, which yep. I don't know if you've heard, I've heard of the Dutch that, test. You've heard yes. of that before. Yeah. Okay. Yep, yep. So Dutch is an acronym for a dried urine test for comprehensive hormones. And Whilst no testing method is perfect, it's probably the, the gold standard hormone test that is on the market at the moment. Um, and it gives us a really good idea of not just your estrogen, but also your cortisol and your cortisol pattern across the day, which is one of the most um, important parts of the test. So we're looking at basically your circadian rhythm. I'm sure mm -hmm. that's something you've spoken about Absolutely. a lot on the show. Yeah. So we get a good idea of where that's at. We can look at your progesterone and then we can also look at where estrogen is or how it's being metabolized in the body mm -hmm. um, and how your liver pathways are working. That's really important because it can tell us a lot of information about what particular area of supporting those estrogen pathways we need to work on. So this might all be foreign, I'm not sure, but a lot of people I think think it's kind of just, it's just estrogen and that's it, right? Mm -hmm. But we've actually got three different types of estrogen uh, and these basically move through different lip pathways in the liver and in the gut in order to get out of the body. Mm -hmm. And often our body for a variety of reasons can send it down pathways we don't want it to go down, yeah. um, which can also, if we're able to identify that, we can also look at really minimizing someone's risk of breast cancer and things like that, which is really important as well yeah. um, because there are more carcinogenic pathways that those estrogen particles or molecules can be going down. Sure. Uh, so yeah, all in all, I recommend starting with blood sugar control as just a really basic strategy for everyone to be doing. Um, but then also if you are experiencing quite severe symptoms, like looking at um, doing a Dutch test with mm -hmm. a 
practitioner, whether that's a naturopath or a nutritionist or something like that, um, and getting that personalized advice, right? Because it isn't a one size fits all um, approach with menopause. And I think if you're not there yet, my advice would be to start as you're going through perimenopause or yeah. once you start to notice any kinds of symptoms, whether it be that your cycle is a little bit irregular or even like your period getting heavier. That's a really common symptom that women will notice. Um, and commonly what women are recommended is a morena, which, you know, may have its place, but it's not necessarily the best option. Um, but looking at kind of addressing that earlier and being on the front foot with it um, as soon as you start feeling like you're in that next phase uh, will generally lead to a much smoother transition for you. Mm, that's all great advice. And, and uh, you know, somebody who has done the Dutch, te- Dutch hormone test, it's definitely, um, I can absolutely recommend it. So if you're in any of these um, questionable moments, then definitely explore that as an option. And in terms of looking at um, regulating insulin levels, how do you suggest, is that also something that people should go and speak to a practitioner about? Is it something they can do themselves? In terms of regulating it, it depends how high it is, to be honest, because I've seen insulin as high as 40 um, and I've seen it kind of on the higher end of like 10 and above Mm -hmm. also being insulin resistant. So basically, the higher it gets, the closer you are towards diabetes, type sure. 2 diabetes, essentially. And the best strategy that you can look at is reducing sugar and carbohydrates. How much is really dependent on where you sit on that spectrum? Yeah. Because obviously, say someone that's at 30 or 40, it's a lot more critical for yeah. them to improve that like yesterday rather yeah. than someone who's sitting at maybe 10 or 12, right? Um, sure. But also, I think just acknowledging that it's not that you need to necessarily look at, especially for women, you know, you probably don't need to look at going like keto or doing an extreme low carb diet or anything like that. It's more just that it needs to be a significant of enough change from what you've been eating previously yeah. in order to get that level to drop, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So another great, great tool. And I guess that they're two really good things that Um, can give you some really accurate results to see where you're Mm. sitting. So the Dutch test and then getting your insulin levels checked can be a really good, nice entry level in to to getting those things ticked off and checking that, you know, everything's A-OK or it's not and you might need to just make some some tweaks and changes. For sure. We're going to finish the podcast on um, some questions that were sent through from Mm -hmm. our base, from our um, Goodnight Co community. But before we get to there, the last um, area that I'd love to chat to you about is the 3 p.m. slump and um, caffeine and sleep, which sort of all fall into this this place. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think that, you know, when we're talking about the 3 p.m. slump for people, it's very real. And I think that it's a daily occurrence for a lot of people who may not have coping strategies for it and, and, or may their coping strategies currently might be reaching for caffeine or reaching for um, sugary foods or drinks or whatever that might be just to get them through until they've got to get home. And so I'd love to talk to you about what this is doing um, in this, again, kind of vicious cycle, daily vicious Mm. cycle for people and how that's impacting their sleep. Yeah, definitely. So there's, different reasons why this can happen and also it can be one or more of like it's not necessarily just one we can have a combination of things but I would say um, like stress hormone dysregulation would be one reason Um, 
obviously just not sleeping enough and having poor sleep. Food intolerances can be another reason. Um, And then I would say most commonly is blood sugar dysregulation. So a lot of people don't realize that that 3 p.m. slump is often a result of previous food choices in the morning. Mm -hmm. And I'll just kind of give you like a scenario, I suppose, to put it into context about how this would happen. So blood sugar 101, basically um, when we eat foods, um, glucose increases, particularly foods that are higher in carbohydrate. Insulin is our main hormone that's then released in order to move that glucose out of the bloodstream and into the cells. So when we eat something like say a bowl of granola and fruit, like that is a, maybe a little bit of fats if there's nuts in there, but for the most part, it's carbs and carbs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're going to have a really significant blood sugar response to that. Our blood glucose is going to spike right up and our insulin is going to spike right up. Now, at that same time, someone in the same hour or so might also have a cup of coffee. Now that also increases our adrenaline and cortisol, which also triggers our liver to liberate um, glucose from the bloodstream because Uh, our brain recognizes that adrenaline and cortisol are an indication that we might need quick acting energy in order to fuel movement so we can get away from whatever it is that's triggering that adrenaline and cortisol. Of course, it's probably just like our emails or something like that, right? (laughs) Absolutely. It's not Um, a lion. It's not a tiger chasing us down the street. Yeah, 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 for sure. So say, for example, that's gone on in the morning. So basically what we're trying to picture here is that your blood sugar's gone right up. Insulin's been secreted. So a couple of hours later, that blood sugar's gone right back down. And so then you're craving more carbohydrates, whether it's like another piece of fruit, maybe you're then looking for another cup of coffee, but it's something to bring that blood blood sugar back up. So often after you've then eaten and whether you've had something like, I don't know, a sandwich or something like that for lunch, we're seeing that we're getting a pattern here of like more carbohydrates, more carbohydrates and not enough proteins or fats. And then by the time we get to three, it's normally like our biggest uh, sort of gap, I suppose, between eating that we would have between lunch and dinner. Yeah. Uh, And basically our blood sugar is kind of gone up and down, up and down all day. And there's always that analogy given of the roller coaster, the blood sugar roller coaster. So that's really what you're imagining. And essentially what's happened in your physiology is that there's not enough glucose in circulation now because it's gone up and then been sucked into the cells. And so your brain is literally looking for what's that quick acting energy or that quick thing that I can get because you are feeling like you just want to crawl under your desk and fall Mm. asleep or have a nap. Like that's literally, it feels like you're in a coma. Yeah. Uh, And so a lot of people, yeah, don't relate that back to, well, it all started with breakfast and what I ate there. If I had say, an omelette and eggs and had my coffee after that and didn't have another one, I would have then had the um, sustained blood sugar to get to lunchtime where I maybe had like a big bowl of veggies and more protein and a little bit of sweet potato or something like that. Like that's a very different scenario. And I promise you, if you ate like that, you would have a very different experience. You feel feel it, don't you? Yeah. 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 So a lot of people, I think, um, because it always comes up in the first couple of consultations. And I think after people have made those changes, they're always shocked. Like, I just don't get that anymore. Like, I didn't know Mm -hmm. that was a thing. I thought everyone got that. (laughs) Because I think that we're we're maybe tricked into it a little bit in society because of all Mm -hmm. the advertising messages around 
have this for this and you know here is a solution to get you through and and whatnot so um people assume that that's what happens yeah oh I love those analogies and I think that that can help people because I I guess the thing that I would also love to um touch on here is the caffeine and a lot Mm. of questions I'm not a coffee drinker so I probably don't talk an enormous amount about caffeine because I don't have the, um, it doesn't affect me. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I know that a lot of people, um, I I watch it just in my own environment about um, how addicted people are to caffeine. And, you know, I watch lots of people drink three or four double shots every day, which is, you know it's horrific it's an extreme amount of caffeine and yeah yeah and it's never leaving the body properly so what maybe just break that down for people and not to to shame people or make people feel bad but just to understand that the impact and the role that that is potentially having on their sleep yeah and I think also to acknowledge like why why is that habit formed in the first place like is it because there's too much on your plate and you're looking for a way to cope and I think also like let's be realistic like once you get to a certain amount of caffeine it's like it doesn't make you more productive or anything like that it doesn't you're I mean I know everyone has a different tolerance to caffeine but if I have more than one a day I'm useless I can't (laughs) I'm a shaky mess Um, but basically when we drink coffee in very, very simple terms, it increases adrenaline and cortisol, which are our two key stress hormones. That's why when you, if you do drink it, when you have that first cup, you kind of feel like more alert, Mm. more, um, productive and more kind of just ready to get stuff done. Um, and the other thing that it does do, so adrenaline and cortisol do in, uh, liberate glucose from our liver, as I said earlier. So you also kind of get that little hit within your bloodstream of mm. glucose entering circulation. So it's kind of like a little bit of a sugar hit and an adrenaline hit all in one. Yeah. Now, everyone does have a different tolerance to mm. caffeine. Of course, some people don't drink it at all because they know they can't tolerate it. And some people will tell you that they can have one at six o'clock and fall asleep. But, yeah. um, and, and we do know that from the research, there's different, people have different metabolic rates essentially at which they are metabolizing caffeine. So for our slow metabolism, metabolizers, which would be like me say, I can't drink a coffee after 11 AM. Otherwise I can't fall asleep at night. It's taking me around about six hours to have a half life of that caffeine in my bloodstream. So what that means is like, say I have a coffee at midday, mm-hmm. half of that caffeine amount is still present in my bloodstream at six o'clock that night. Wow. Even people who are on the slower end of the spectrum, uh, fast end of the spectrum, sorry, it's still estimated that it's around um, two to three hours. So say someone having a coffee at that 3 p.m. slump, Mm -hmm. um, say it's 100 milligrams in a single shot, then 50 milligrams is, again, still present at um, 6 p.m. at night. Now, I think hopefully everyone can agree that in this day and age we don't need anything to be artificially increasing our adrenaline or cortisol all you have to do is open your emails and look at the news and that's already (laughs) happening for you right so um I think we just really need to be mindful of um yeah again coming back to yeah what we can also look at taking out to remove that burden Mm. on our body rather than always looking to add in so 
you know, we're not looking at, oh, can we add in some magnesium or some passion flower or something like that to calm down the nervous system? It's like, no, well, what are we doing to actually stimulate it consistently throughout the day? And how can we remove that? Personally, in clinic, I don't like to see anyone having more than one a day. I just think it's, mm. um, you're frankly like putting fuel on the fire, particularly if you're in my clinic and you're coming to see me for hormone issues. Yeah. I just think, yeah, it's a big um, red flag. And I think as well, if you have any hormone issues or energy issues, making sure you're not having it when you first wake up in the morning, mm. um, your cortisol is already highest um, to get you out of bed. And essentially drinking too much caffeine is one of the major triggers for cortisol dysregulation. So that might look like your waking up really tired and groggy in the morning and then feeling wired at nighttime. So if that you're in that sort of camp of people where you've got energy issues throughout the day, then caffeine is something to address for sure. So many people I know that's the first thing that they have that hits their um, system in the morning, you know, six o'clock, six thirty, seven o'clock, whatever time it is. And it's just sort of, it's thinking about things to, um, well, as you say, to either take away or to replace, you know, yeah. having um, a glass of water or a warm glass of warm water or, or a nice herbal tea can, can be a really nice way to start the morning instead of the coffee and having that caffeine at around 10 o'clock, which is probably a bit more of an optimal time to be processing, digesting and making sure there's enough time before um, going to sleep sure. as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I'm glad that we agree on that one. Um, it is, it's such a big topic, I think. And, you know, it is a bit scary to think that there are a lot of people having potentially eight to 10 to 12 equivalent cups of coffee a day. Um, and that's just never leaving their system. Yeah, it's frightening. And I think also when you're at that level as well, you're really messing with your electrolyte balance as well. People don't realize that often that coffee is a diuretic um, and you are pulling out electrolytes from your body, which can impact your heart. That can impact how your heart functions because you don't have those nerve impulses working properly as a result of electrolyte imbalances, which people often don't know and then you're adding potentially those people adding layers of alcohol on top of that as well yes which is adding the more electrolyte imbalance as well and you know that could go on for forever but for sure. I, I think that the key message is not to frighten people but to really take notice that there is yeah it's not it, we're not just coming out and saying don't drink coffee you know it doesn't help you yeah. sleep there's a there's some scientific um mm. research around why you should look at reducing how much you drink and when you drink it For sure. So some of the questions that we have been asked to uh, get some advice from you from our community is uh, the first one is, does the time you eat dinner affect your sleep? Yes, it definitely does. I think maybe we've all experienced this where you go out for dinner and you have a really big meal and then you go home and you go to sleep shortly after and you might wake up during the night or you might have difficulty getting to sleep. In saying that sort of, don't not eat at the expense of not eating and then going to sleep. If you know what I mean? Like we're all going to have days where we have big days and that just has to happen and that's fine. But I think ideally if you can allow yourself around two to three hours um, between dinner and sleep, at least your big meal and sleep, that's going to be ideal for you. And it might even be, um, you know, on the days that you know that you're going to be eating later, that can you swap and do, if, if you're somebody that has your bigger meal at nighttime, Swapping and having a bigger meal during 
lunchtime yep. and having that smaller meal um, at nighttime for sure. Doing like a soup or a salad or something yeah. like that, salad and protein or something that's going to be a little bit lighter. Um, but, yeah, basically from I guess the sciencey point of view, your food is just not far enough down into the digestive system um, and also as we've talked about, you will be spiking your blood sugar from eating foods. And so that's going to impact your ability to actually even feel sleepy as well. Yeah. Okay. Now um, we know that hydration and water play a really big role when it comes to sleep, because we often, you know, for people that might be mouth breathers or, or whatnot, the water is being evaporated, I guess, out of your system just naturally. So what is an optimal it's personalized, I'm sure, but what is an optimal um, hydration level for people to to be aiming for during the day? Yeah, yeah. So it obviously is personalized, but a good ballpark to aim for is around about 35 mils per kilo of body weight. So mm-hmm. say if you, and you can work that out really, really easily um, with a calculator, it would even just be like, say you weigh 60 kilos, 35 by 60 will give you 2,100 milliliters, which is 2.1 liters. Yeah. Um, so that is a good kind of ballpark to aim for. And then, you know, other variables would be say exercise and the intensity of exercise that you're doing. So if you're doing just an example, like a one hour F45 or something like that, for every hour of exercise, particularly with intensity, you want to add around 500 mils onto that. Um, But then I think most importantly, it's to just really be guided by your thirst as well. Like Mm. if you're thirstier than that, drink more than that. Obviously, if you know that you're not drinking enough and you're sitting around one liter a day, then you know you need to increase that already. Um, But that that is a really good um, ballpark to aim for. Great. I love that. I actually haven't heard that one before. So I guess that that helps because if you're a a smaller frame or a bigger frame, Mm. um, you might need to be more hydrated. Yeah, definitely. I think um, we always hear like the generic two or three liters a day, um, but it can be really different, particularly depending on your muscle mass and things like that. And how much level of activity and all those things. Yeah. Level of activity. Yeah. Okay. Now um, somebody has asked the question. We actually get asked this question quite a bit is that I love a couple of pieces of dark chocolate after my dinner, but understand that this might not be great for sleep. Is there an alternative you can suggest? Yes. So alternative wise, I mean, if you're wanting something like chocolate, you can, if you like it, try Carob. There is a brand called the Carob Kitchen Bar and they do um, one that is sugar-free as well. So that's quite a good option if you want something similar to that. Um, Other options, especially in cooler months would be like a uh, hot carob drink or something like that, that you could make. But I would say, you know, it is quite individual. Obviously there is caffeine, of course, in chocolate, mm. but what you could also try is doing a week of say the carob, seeing if you feel any different, doing yeah. a week of the chocolate and seeing if you feel any different because, um, you know, like personally, I'm someone who's very, very sensitive to coffee. If I were to have more than two and I'm not having any at the moment, but if I were having more than two, I would be like sweaty and anxious all day right. and I yeah. can't have more than at one after 11, like anything after 11, I won't sleep, but I can eat chocolate after dinner and, and sleep no amazing okay. and it doesn't have any effect on me. So I do think that even though it is present, it's slightly, you know, can be metabolized, I guess, different in your body. So I would say how you feel in your body is yeah. the best test as to how that is affecting you. So try both and see how you feel. Yeah. Okay. That's great. 
And uh, lastly, are there some specific foods you would recommend eating to get better sleep? Yes. So it's great if you do want to include starchy carbs with dinner. So things Mm. like potato, rice, sweet potato, those sorts of things, obviously with proteins and fats. We don't want to just have those, but including those, um, as you probably know, converts into tryptophan and then that converts into melatonin, which is that main sleep hormone. So we've probably all had that feeling as well, where you have like a big bowl of pasta or a big bowl of something starchy and you feel like you want to have a nap afterwards. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, That's in part because of that. So you don't necessarily need to go away and eat a whole bowl of it, but having (laughs) those foods included in your dinner is one of the best and simplest ways you can um, look at doing that. And I think most people will be able to achieve that and probably already are doing that. Um, Herbal teas are great as well. I think most popular ones would be chamomile and lemon balm. Yeah. Um, they're great for calming down the nervous system. There are also other tryptophan containing foods, um, which, as I said, tryptophan converts into melatonin, things like nuts and seeds, cheese mm-hmm. as well. So nuts and seeds on top of your salad or your veggies or something like that is a really easy way to achieve that. A lot of, um, you know, it's often recommended that turkey helps with that, but yeah, I just I don't think that. a lot of people eat that want and I don't snack, know or, or how well snack on turkey. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't sort of know how, uh, from the nutritional perspective, how well it's like sort of um, like raised and that kind of thing in Australia. So yeah, yeah. jury's still out on that one. As far yeah. as I'm concerned, I would be opting for the cheese or the nuts or the sweet Absolutely. potato. Um, and then from a nutrient perspective, everyone's probably heard magnesium um, as being praised for that really important micronutrient to help with sleep, but um, not all magnesiums are created equal. Mm-hmm. So my best option for um, one to help with sleep would be something called magnesium bisglycinate. Okay. Basically that refers to the compound or the molecule that the magnesium is bound to in the um, supplement Now, a lot of um, other ones on the market are like a magnesium oxide or a magnesium chelate or a magnesium citrate would be the other common one. You don't want to go near those because they will create loose bowel movements Mm. um, and often cramping as well. So some people say like, yeah, I tried magnesium, but it it made my um, stools really loose. And that's Mm. why it's not the magnesium itself. It's just what it's been bound to. So just making sure you read labels and um, are really careful about what is is actually in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is a great thing to say, have if it's a liquid, um, having it with dinner is a really good yeah. thing to do. Um, it really helps to calm down the nervous system and the dosage is 300 to 350 milligrams. Okay. And yeah. the magnesium bisglycate that you were talking mm-hmm. about, is there a specific brand that you like or you can choose anything yeah there's um the one i normally go with is is a practitioner one it's called like the metagenics carmex that's the um brand i really like but from memory uh i think ethical nutrients do one that is the same form that you can find say over the counter at like a chemist warehouse or something like that um but there's a few different forms even within that say product range yeah. or product brand. So just always making sure you're really checking what else is in it. Yeah. And I think when it comes to anything like this, 
prescribing um, supplements and adding these things in, then seeking some um, professional advice is probably oh, the best place sure. to start. And that really yeah. comes back to what we were talking about in the beginning. It's, you know, if you're feeling like any of these uh, problems that you can relate to, then going and getting a health checkup with whoever that might be that's in your, you know, in your team. group, in your team mm-hmm. um, is a great place to start. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. So if people are wanting to reach out to you, where can they do that? So the best or the place I'm most active really is on Instagram and my handle there's Selene Douglas underscore nutrition. Um, but you can also find me online. So my online home is just selendouglas.com. Uh, and you can see all the things I guess that I'm up to on there. I also have my own podcast, which you can find on yes. there as well. Uh, and if you are wanting to get some personalized advice um, on anything, then you, the best place to start is just to book in a complimentary call um, so that we can check that I'm the right person to help you. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for um, joining us today. I think that there's been some really great things that we've chatted about um, in lots of detail and the big thing that I mentioned that I that I really love that you've suggested is to, to really look at um, what what can you take out of what you're currently doing rather than just adding more things into it. Because I think that when it comes to sleep, um, one of the biggest things, challenges that we're facing is stress and anxiety. And I think that that really works to that point because mm-hmm. when we're feeling stressed and anxious, we've probably got too much going on. So what can we take away rather than just add some more things in? Yeah, for sure. I love all the strategies like the meditation and the breathing techniques and all of that. But I think, I don't know, I always relate it to, I suppose, like the Western medical model about it being about symptom management. And I think sometimes as it relates to stress and anxiety, we can often look to do the same thing there rather than kind of looking at how can we fix this or remove the burden from that person. We're looking at what strategies can we add in to cope with this, which are all really amazing. We need those strategies for sure. Don't get me wrong, but I think we also need to look at, um, yeah, how we can alleviate some of that. Alleviate and simplify even as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Selene. It was wonderful to chat to you today and uh, we look forward to to catching up with you again, hopefully soon and discussing more things to do with uh, sleep and nutrition. Amazing. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Good Night Show. If you're keen to learn more about our guests or any of the topics we've spoken about today, hop on over to the Good Night Co. closed Facebook community group or check us out at thegoodnightco.com.au. And if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast provider by searching The Good Night Show. And if you love what you're hearing, don't forget to leave us a glowing review. Thanks, everyone.